welcome to the Community Conversations Podcast. I'm Chaplain Captain Caleb McCary with Chaplain Major Delana Small, and today we're going to be talking with Chaplain Major General Thomas L. Soljum, the Chief of Chaplains for the United States Army, about what brought him into the Chaplain Corps, what drives him at this stage in his career, and what the Chaplain Corps is doing to provide spiritual leadership to the Army family during times of uncertainty. Well, good morning, everyone. It is my pleasure to introduce Chaplain Major General Thomas L. Soljum to you today. He became the United States Army's 25th Chief of Chaplains on May 31, 2019. He is ordained and endorsed as an Army Chaplain by the General Council of the Assemblies of God. He has served in the Army for nearly 40 years through key assignments like Ranger Regiment and as the Force Com Chaplain. As the Chief of Chaplains, Chaplain Soljum leads the Army Chaplain Corps in providing religious support to the soldiers, families, and civilians of the United States Army. Chaplain Soljum, welcome to Community Conversations. Now, before we dive into some of the more formal portion of our recording today, we want to get to know you a little bit, your journey into the Chaplain Corps, and how your formative years may have brought you where you are today. So, sir, the floor is yours. Please tell us about that journey. Well, thank you, Caleb and Delena, um, for the invitation to be with you today. I really appreciate it, and I'm happy to tell my story, and I think uh, everybody has a story to tell. And I think uh, what I'd offer before I dive into personal things, it's uh, I, I think being curious about the Army's people is an invaluable gift. Um, we have a very diverse Army. People come from all kinds of backgrounds. Some people are running from something, running to something. Others maybe had a, a more solid upbringing, and now they're looking to just invest and be a steward of what their parents have given them, maybe coming from a very healthy family structure. So um, I'm happy to share my story today, but I acknowledge that every person's of value, every person's important, and everybody has a story to tell. So I feel humbled and honored today to, to be able to share my story with you and, and with the Chaplain Corps and the Army. So I think, um, first of all, just a minor correction, not that I would want to add more years to my life, right? But actually, it's more than 40 years. It's almost 49 years. Um, and uh, I entered the Army uh, in the delayed entry program. And so on 10 July 1973 was the very first day of the Volunteer Army. The draft had ended on January 25th of that year. Vietnam was still going on. Um, and Saigon didn't fall until the spring of 75. So that's a context, right? Um, so on July 10th, uh, a different person than the one sitting here now, less cleaned up, less polished, went to the MEP station in Fargo, North Dakota, and on the very first day of the Volunteer Army, I raised my right hand, went into the delayed entry program, which required, I was only 16 at the time. It didn't matter because I was in between my junior and senior year of high school. So I was able to get my mother to sign to allow me to do that. So I've actually technically on paper been around um, since 1973. So that minor correction, not that I've just added more years to my life now in terms of, boy, people are starting to do the math here and figuring it out. So, um, but to get to what you really asked me about, um, I think to really unpackage the story, it started in a childhood um, in a rural uh, context on a ranch in North Dakota. It was a pretty idyllic childhood. It was, uh, 
it was uh, what I'd call almost like a leave it to beaver world, if you would, um, uh, where, you know, nothing really bad happened. Things were pretty homogenous. Life was fairly predictable. I was raised uh, in a religious family. I was raised Lutheran. Um, we attended church regularly. Um, my uh, my family of origin on one side of my family was Norwegian. My mother's family were refugees post-World War II to this country, um, and uh, she's German. Um, and uh, And so that was my family beginnings growing up in this rural life and all the things associated with that. It was very idyllic. Um, and my grandparents were, were loomed large on the horizon for me. I think the story would be incomplete. My grandfather was really somebody who I looked to, to emulate. Um, he was a very um, man of few words, hardworking, um, but had a very tender personality. Um, my grandmother um, was just a, a very godly woman. Um, who had a real genuine love for the Lord um, and wanted to impart that to the next generation. I was the oldest grandchild, so I got a lot of love early. Um, and so I grew up in that environment, um, and then um, some things began to happen in my family system. My dad struggled um, with depression, um, and um, and that had that affected our family life. Then we moved into Fargo, North Dakota. Um, and then in my junior high years, uh, early junior high years, um, my parents divorced. And it was a very messy situation um, and uh, involving infidelity. And, um, and then my mother um, had some significant issues and challenges as a result of that divorce. It was a very difficult time. And my world unraveled, so to speak. Um, all the security, all the things that we had embraced growing up, our belief system was kind of shattered. And as a result, um, my world changed exponentially. Um, and I became a confused, troubled young person lacking the maturity and the wherewithal to, to make sense of everything. Um, my parents had their own struggles. Um, my father remarried. Um, and, uh, and so I struggled in school. Um, I acted out. Uh, and after my sophomore year, the public school system said, you know, don't come back. Um, and so my grandfather looming large, intervened, and my, my parents, my father's and his siblings and my grandmother had all gone to a private Lutheran school called Oak Grove. So my grandfather intervened, and uh, he sent me, got me enrolled in, in Oak Grove, um, where I went in my junior and senior year of high school. And during that time, I was shuttled around from my dad to my mom to the dorm. And, uh, and so things became increasingly more uh, uh, polarizing in my life, um, and I made a lot of bad choices, behaviors, drugs, other things um, as a young person. And this, now this military commitment is coming upon me because in between my junior and senior year, I went down to the MEP station, and I was really 
I wanted to get away. I was joining the army to get away from the world as I knew it. And I was looking for something. And uh, so fast forward, I managed to graduate from high school. I have no earthly idea how that occurred. Um, I jokingly say, I think they just wanted my grandfather's money. Um, and they gave me a diploma, but I was not a, a student of very high standards uh, or caliber. And so uh, I joined the army uh, that uh, after after graduation uh, in the fall of that year, I was sent to basic training in AIT at Fort Ord, California. And then my first duty assignment was Bamberg, Germany. And all of my behaviors, all of the things that uh, I had embraced in the previous years as a rebellious youth, right, just found a perfect seedbed in the army of that era. It was a very troubled army, a lot of racial problems, serious racial problems, uh, a lot of drug, uh, rampant drug issues, and other, uh, other moral and ethical behavior issues uh, of that era. Um, and, uh, and so um, I became increasingly more um, depressed, anxious about my life, um, making really poor choices. Um, had a couple of uh, near-death experiences, drug overdoses. Um, the second time actually, you know, was put in the hospital for a period of time as a result of it. I went back to the unit, um, and uh, in the midst of all this, I saw a psychologist, um, but just had a couple of sessions, never never met a chaplain, never uh, interfaced, and, and frankly, just was in an environment where I was surviving. Nobody really cared. And uh, then I met uh, Doc McElroy, Sergeant First Class Doc McElroy, the, the battalion medic, who was a person of faith, who saw how troubled I was, who took a personal interest in me. And through the course of that relationship uh, with him, um, my life began to change. And ultimately, in a very dramatic way, as he and I, one evening in an encounter, I realized that if I continued this way, I may not live long um, with the choices I was making. And so I made a profession of faith in his room um, and, in, and, um, and really reconnected. So the things on really bad days, it's really interesting what you remember and what sticks with you spiritually. So when I was in the worst of moments, I would often think of my grandmother. And I was drawn back to, I remember vividly an incident where she was a wonderful musician, had a beautiful voice. And so she was playing a song for me. Um, and the song, um, it's uh, God answers prayer in the morning, God answers prayer at noon, God answers prayer in the evening. He'll keep your heart in tune. And there's some other verses that accompany that. Um, and then she had a worn out Bible. Um, and she opened it up and she read a passage from John, the third chapter to me, talked about how much God loved me. And she talked to me, and I, w I couldn't have been more than eight years old, but I remember it just like it was yesterday. And she said, these scriptures, this is God's word to us. And these scriptures, when you read them, the Holy Spirit will illuminate them for you, will give you understanding of what is written, but you must believe. 
And so I remember that conversation. I remember that little interlude and on really bad days that would, I would recall that memory and I knew there was something out there. I just didn't have the relational connection to understand. I had not made it personal. Well, with Doc McElroy, it became very personal and my life transformed and changed in a moment, in a nanosecond. As I made that profession of faith, I got up from there and the addiction abated. Um, I, I desired to leave those things behind and, and with God's help, change the person that I'd become into the person that he wanted me to be. And then he, realizing that I was in need of more care than a medic was able to provide, introduced me to the chaplain, um, Chaplain uh, Sam Sanford, we didn't have a chaplain in the engineer battalion, but he was the infantry battalion chaplain on the other side of the Caserne there in Bamberg, Germany. He and his wife, Linda, they took me in. They showed me what a Christian home looked like. Um, and uh, that is really where things began to turn for me. Um, and that is where, um, through that relationship, um, my identity and my life's meaning and purpose began to take form. Uh, and I, I would just end with this, and then if you want to f- ask more or take it in other directions, uh, I, as I was preparing to ETS, and I was going to go out and into the reserves, right, but I'm leaving the active army to go into the reserves and fulfill my rest of my obligation. Um, I was sitting in the chapel, and I prayed a very simple prayer. I said, Lord, I don't know where my life is headed. I just know I want to follow you. And Lord, I would do and be anything you desire me to be. And then I thought, well, what could I offer up? And then I thought of Chapman Sanford. And I said audibly, I said, God, I'd even be an Army chaplain. And I, I really didn't like the Army. I wanted to leave it in my rearview mirror. Um, and that, that utterance changed me from the inside. I got up from that prayer, walked out of the chapel door. And if you had met me outside, walking down the street back to my barracks, and you would have asked me, Tom Soljum, what are you going to do with your life? I would have said, I'm not sure how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to be an army chaplain. I knew from that moment um, what my destiny was. And so it really makes the rest of your life easy when you know what you've been called to do. Um, then you're just simply walking by faith to fulfill God's plans and purposes. So I, I feel like I'm living a gift. God gave me a gift. Sir, I'm struck in your in your story there about the impact of a few particular people and people who were willing to uh, to intervene, to step into uh, the pain and the struggle that you were having uh, and how impactful that was for you. Uh, can you speak a little bit more about the importance of having people who are willing to do that. Yeah, I think, I think sometimes we're afraid um, to invest. We don't want to invest for fear of rejection um, or being misunderstood. Um, but maybe it's just not caring enough, um, being too consumed. And we live in an age where we have technology and other things that really, um, they get in the way. <laughs> They really do from us going a little deeper with people. And so I think that uh, 
I think what's really, really important as we talk about putting people first, that's an action. That's a relationship. That's a connection with other people. And it goes back to what, where I started about being curious. I love talking to soldiers and hearing their story. And maybe in their story somewhere, I might have a way to intervene or connect in their story and maybe help them along their journey. So I think it's a very powerful thing when we take the time to get to know people. And really, you know, the things that you remember is when people took time for you. My grandmother that day invested in me. I never forgot it. Now, I don't know that she remembered that moment, but she was very intentional. And I think that's the most important word, intentional. I also had a wrestling coach in Oak, at Oak Grove who was a Vietnam veteran who had, I believe, as I look back on it, had post-traumatic stress. Um, he cared very deeply, but I did not respond to his care, but it, it didn't stop him from caring. Even though I continued to make egregious mistakes, and I was the team captain, and he let me slide in some areas because he saw potential, but I didn't, I didn't readily receive his care, right? But when I met him late in later years, I thanked him for not giving up on me. And so I think that's, those are really important leadership lessons. When you have people in your care as a leader in the United States Army, right, it's all about the investment that you make in them and the life-changing difference it can make in a young person um, or any person, frankly, when somebody cares enough to go deeper. I call it, um, it's the difference between water skiing. Where I come from, we do a lot of water skiing, superficial on the surface, this is putting on your suit and going deep, getting to know what's under the water in the lives of people, what's not visible. You're going to have to ask the right questions. Doc McElroy asked me a transformational question. He said, specialist soldier, a rank that I earned three times, is your life worth living this way? That cut deep. I knew the answer right? No. But how do I get out of this cycle? So I think insightful, transformational, so much of life is transactional. What are you going to do for me? What can I do for you? But what we need in relationships and in the United States Army, we need transformational conversations and relationships where we are willing to step out um, and take a risk with somebody, and even being misunderstood in order to understand. So, sir, I hear you talking about purpose, purpose driving this journey to chaplaincy, purpose in, in God grounding you in your faith and that transformation you experience. So what does purpose look like now that you are the chief of chaplains? Once upon a time, it was a purpose to become an army chaplain. Now you're the chaplain of chaplains. What does that look like today? Yeah, it's, it's really, it's uh, one, it's stewardship. I mentioned that I got a gift, right? So like any gift, what are you going to do with it? Hoard it or are you going to share it? And so I see myself, my life now in this, in this capacity is stewardship. It isn't about me. I'm past that. That's been resolved, right? It's what can I give 
the Army, and what can I give the Chaplain Corps and its people? So it's really about being a steward of what you have been the recipient of over many years of the Army investing in me as a person and the Chaplain Corps and then the people. So I see it's it's stewardship and then it's service. Uh, I think our greatest joy, my greatest joy comes from not getting, but giving. Um, and, And oftentimes at this level, a lot of your giving isn't visible. (laughs) People don't even know what you're doing for them. Uh, They just know it's working or it's not, right? Um, And so a lot, you have to take a different, there isn't a sense of the instantaneous gratification. Oftentimes at this level, things you may not even realize what you've started. You may envision something for the future, which is really strategically what the chief of chaplains should be doing, which you're maybe not going to realize in your tenure, not that that's excessively important, um, but while you're still in uniform even. So it's going to be someone else is going to benefit from that service. So stewardship, service, um, and then I I think the the other thing that I would uh, readily identify, um, it's I, I think it's a level of it's sincerity. Do people see me as a person? Do they see me as being genuine and care for them? So I think the sincerity with which we deliver the package, who we are, right? What you see is what you get. There's no agenda. If I tell you something, I sincerely mean it. I'm committed to whatever it is that we're doing. And I, and I think that level of transparency is very beneficial. I hope and pray it's beneficial when people see that, you know, you're, you're willing to be vulnerable as I'm putting myself out there today um, and willing to be transparent. You're humanizing the person and the role that you have. Uh, I realize that I am, and that steward, I'm a steward of what has been given going back all the way to Chaplain Axon, the first chief of chaplains. And then all the chaplains who served before that, right? I'm just a custodian, a steward for a season. And my responsibility as a chief is to receive what I've been given, to improve what I've been given with an eye towards the future and setting the conditions for those who will follow. So that that's how I, I see myself. It's no longer direct leadership. It's more indirect leadership. Um, and uh, it is empowering people making sure that they have what they need so that they can be successful in the execution of their ministry at whatever echelon they find themselves at. Chaplain Soljum, in your tenure in the Army, uh, one of the, the the advantages of having served for such a length of time is you have seen times of uncertainty and times of disruption over the course of your career. We are two years into COVID-19, um, you turn on the news for, for any length of time or get on social media and we see things about what's happening in our world, what's happening in Ukraine. And it, it all feels very uncertain right now. What would you say to our chaplain core family as uh, we're trying to lead through this time of uncertainty and be spiritual leaders in our formations? Yeah. You got to know your history. 
So if we look back over our history, we've had a lot of uncertainty. We started in a great deal of uncertainty in the beginning, right? We were taking on the, the best and largest standing army of the world to gain our freedoms, right? So we were born in conflict as a nation. And, and so conflict isn't new to us, and the chaplaincy has been there through every, before we were even a country. While we were seeking our independence and fighting for it, the chaplaincy, July 29th, 1775. Our origins were rooted in that sense of other and then what we bring in that, in those difficult times as we talk about how we nurture the living, how we care for the wounded, and how we honor the fallen. We, if you were to ask the revolutionary era chaplain, if those were his three competencies, he may not have said it that way, but he certainly would have understood it. All right, and now we can add a she to that. And so not only have we started out where we were then, a very segregated um, and male-dominated, now we've, as we've grown over time, we've become a much more diverse nation and a much more diverse army. But we've always been there in times of conflict. And the chaplain corps has always risen to the occasion. So whether it was this, you know, Spanish-American War, the Mexican War, um, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War One, um, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, you know, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, some of the the uh, the, insur- the insurgent type activities post nine eleven, the contingency opera. We have always the Chaplain Corps has always been there. The Army's always looked to us um, to be other our distinctives, right? These, they see us as a, as a unique uh, member of the formation of the team, the chaplain, the religious affairs specialist, and then our civilian counterparts, our directors of religious education. Um, and they're looking to us in these uncertain times, uh, as well as we are also dealing with our own issues because we're human. So all the things that are happening in our culture but they're not, if we know our history, we can take counsel. So as I look at now almost five decades of history, right? So when I came into the Army, racism was exponentially worse. Cities in our country were experiencing riots. They were Whole cities were being burned to the ground over injustices. Um, the... We had race riots and racial tensions on Army installations in CONUS and overseas. Um, We had rampant drug and substance abuse issues. Um, Our moral ethical compass was way off due north. Um, And it was the chaplaincy that rose in those occasions. As I shared my story, go figure, one chaplain in a place and time, what a difference um, one person can make. And the huge affect that Chaplain Sanford had on Bamberg, Germany, in that era. Not only did he affect the person that's speaking to you, but I saw hundreds of soldiers whom he directly impacted and the leaders who had no answers. And if you don't if it's not lost on you today, we struggle to find answers. We don't understand the suicide dilemma. 
we often don't understand what's driving some of the racial problems or division in our country. We're so polarized, right? So the, the Army, the nation, needs the Chaplain Corps to be its best self uh, in these troubling times. And we've got to take care of each other. I know that uh, some of our teammates struggle, and we've got to take care of our brothers and sisters uh, in our formation as we take care of the Army uh, family. Uh, that is our calling to do. So, And, and uh, life happens. And we got to be there for our teammates when life happens. So a couple final questions for you. Uh, first of all, what kind of legacy do you want to leave for the Chaplain Corps? You mentioned stewardship earlier and stewarding the profession. What kind of legacy do you want to leave for the Chaplain Corps? Yeah, I think it's, I want to be really cautious. It's, it's not my legacy. Uh, it's our legacy. You, you are doing it. <laughs> I am simply uh, directing it. So if you could use a musical analogy, the director synchronizes the effects of the musicians, right? But it's the musicians who bring the beauty of the music to the people. So I, I think my, I'm, I'm like the conductor, uh, if you will. My job is to shepherd, to lead, to provide vision and direction, um, and to synchronize and resource all of our activities. But it's everyone else that's executing that each and every day. That's the important part of the legacy. So the legacy of the chaplain corps needs to be, during anyone's tenure, needs to be the stewarding of the profession, to continue to improve and develop the profession within the profession of arms. So I think the legacy is, is that we have responded to the crisis of our time, a pandemic, racial unrest, now the, what we see unfolding in Europe and the Ukraine with Russia, um, that we are demonstrating once again how critical we are to the Army's people. We're there for them. We've been there for them in the pandemic. We've stood right alongside and experienced it ourselves. And now our chaplain teams are doing wonderful things, both as we exited Afghanistan. Some of the best narrative stories are what our chaplain teams were doing in those difficult, dark situations with the complex chaos and uncertainty, VUCA environment. Um, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Uh, and in that environment, our people have risen to the surface, and we're seeing it again as we are deploying forces and our chaplain teams are being leaned upon heavily uh, to take care of the force that's, that's, that's been deployed. So I think, you know, I would never want to say I, I would, I care less about what people think about the soldier years. I care more about what they think about those years and that season and that time. And because we all have a very important role to play. Um, I have mine. Everyone else has theirs. And uh, 
So that's not a false sense of humility. That's just a real understanding of what you're here to do and the limitation, the limitations of, of what you're able to do uh, in time that you really need other people. I often tell the chaplain corps, I need you more than you need me. And sir, you've hit on so many themes today. Uh, what people first looks like in the chaplain corps, you touched on diversity, how we're uh, troubleshooting uncertainty. I mean, you're really speaking to these powerful themes that are uh, driving our ministry down at the tactical level. And so I just appreciate your encouragement for so many of our UMTs out in the field hearing um, that this is on your mind. So thank you for that, sir. We're going to squeeze in one final question. Uh, I think this is something I'm always curious about, but you, you talk a lot about taking care of the core and stewarding the profession uh, as a Christian chaplain how does taking care of yourself as a spiritual fitness um, goal? What is what does that look like to you? And how do you how do you live this life as unto the Lord every day? Yeah. I, so while I have a great helpmate, so I haven't mentioned my family. So just for our audience, I have four children, all married, um, and uh, three boys and a, and, a, and a daughter, three sons and a daughter, and uh, all the boys went into the military. Air Force and two in the Army. Um, I have six grandchildren. Um, so it's family, right? So over the years, we, we were a team. It started with Jill, and I haven't even talked about my wife today. And if she's hearing this, boy, oh boy, I just saved my bacon, right? Um, it's all about her, right? And it's all about those kids. And so she's my childhood sweetheart. And when I came back from that first enlistment, and I knew my life was set. Um, God brought us together. We reconnected. We never really dated. We just really liked each other since we were 12 years old. And, um, and we fell, we just reconnected and fell in love. And I, I don't, I don't like that. Sometimes that term, that sounds so frivolous, right? But we already knew each other and that reconnection. It didn't take long for God to kindle the flame of affection for each other. And uh, we we dated for three weeks. I asked her to marry me, and we were married seven months later. Never would I, in my counseling, premarital counseling, recommend it. But there's a lot of variables that go into why that can work. But I would say that that helped me from the very beginning, that partnership, because it's a calling for both of us. That partnership is critical. Because she holds me accountable. When I'm not in my best self, I hear it. Okay? It's a constant reminder. And so I know that when that I'm going to go home, I'm going to be loved, but I'm going to be held accountable. That's a powerful uh, duality. Um, and then children and raising children and going through life together um, and building those memories and the spiritual formation that, you, that your family experiences over time that you learn to depend upon God in difficult circumstances. It's not been easy. None of this has been easy. And so in those seasons of separation, when I wasn't there, Jill had to trust God to fill the gaps that only he could fill. So we, we, I look at military life and family as a powerful um, multiplier of my spiritual life. I believe I'm a deeper stronger, 
more well-connected person spiritually because of my family and because of the journey that we shared together and the, and, and the connectedness that we feel as a result of the hardships that we shared together as a family. We're strong. Um, and then when the kids left, when we became empty nesters, um, I will confess that when I stopped deploying, I went to the war college. Finally, I got a year. And after about 30 days, my wife says, you know, you're going to need to find a hobby that's not just me, right? So it's very interesting how, um, how even, even, in, even in our interdependence on each other, right, there's that strong spirit of dependence that, you know, and so I thought it was a, a great reminder that, um, yes, you know, we need each other but we also need things to fulfill ourselves as well. So I think spiritually we have our disciplines, and I just close with this. So just like every day, get up physically, work out, whatever that workout looks like for that day. That's very important. What you eat is very important. The older you get, the more important that is. It really is. And how you've monitored your diet and health over your life is going to determine your years, as well as your spiritual life. Very important that. Your disciplines are there every day so that you're making time and space and you're intentional for your disciplines, whether it's reading of scripture, whether it's praying or singing, whatever is appropriate or sharing that space with other people. Those disciplines are, are very, very important. And then sharing um, that in community with others. We haven't talked today about much about community, but I mentioned my community of origin how important that was when things got really, it was scaffolding as I was falling that broke the fall. And so I think to answer your question, it's family. I'm deeply rooted in my identity and my family. We're deeply connected to each other. We love each other, but we hold each other accountable. Um, and, uh, and I think that uh, when you're the chief of chaplains and you go to work every day, there's a lot of people to make you accountable. So I'm, I feel like I'm really, I am working with a team of people who genuinely care about my well-being. And I, re, I really appreciate it. The, the team that I have in the front office, they're wonderful people. And, they, and my regimental sergeant major, my battle buddy, he knows when I'm not having the best day. He can see it. He can sense it, that kind of connection, right? And then he cares enough to ask and dig a little deeper. So... God bless you both. Thank you so much for the opportunity to just chat with you today, uh, Caleb and Galena. And I appreciate who you are, what you do, um, and for allowing the chaplain corps to get to know their chief a little bit better through this podcast. Well, Chaplain Soljum, thank you so much for joining us on Community Conversations and for sharing some of your own story and how the Chaplain Corps is working to ensure our Army is spiritually ready to answer the call of our nation. I hope you've enjoyed our first few episodes of Community Conversations, and we've got more great content coming. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast and your favorite podcasting app. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review, which will help other people discover the podcast. Thank you for listening, and join us again next time for another Community Conversation.